So if you were with us last week, we started a new series of messages called Love Song. And we talked about um, the fact that one of the greatest love songs ever written is found in Scripture in the book of Song of Solomon. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn there to Song of Solomon. And we're going to be uh, toward the end of the book in chapter 7 and 8 today. Uh, last week we were at the beginning. This week we're at the end. Next week we're going to be in the middle. And so we're just kind of jumping all around. But uh, the point we made last week was simply this. We talked about who it is, the right person to be in a relationship or the right person to marry. And the idea for the whole sermon came down to this simple phrase. And it was simply this, that you need to become the person, the person you were looking for is looking for. And so in a relationship, if it's difficult, if there are issues happening in a marriage or in a uh, in the dating relationship, and you think it's the other person, you need to begin by asking the question, am I the person the person I'm looking for is looking for? And so today we're going to kind of move in a little bit uh, further direction and talk about really what happens after you're in a relationship. Now, I just want to tell you from the very beginning, I believe that this message today is particularly applicable to two groups of people. It is particularly applicable to those people in the room who are married and to those in the room who are single. And so if you're here today and you are married or single, uh, just could you raise your hand for a second? All right. Some of you don't know. That is a questionable thing. And so we're going to talk about um, kind of how to move through that. Um, I want to make a confession as we get started and then kind of move into the, the message. Um, I am not what you would call an outdoorsy person. Like, my idea of a great time is not necessarily hiking up a trail, finding a campsite, camping out there under the stars. And, like, I see pictures of people doing that online, and part of me really would love to be that person. Like, that's what I wish. I wish I could get a backpack on and do that. It's just, that that's just not me. All right. Not that I can enjoy it sometimes, but the, my idea when I think, boy, I, if I could do anything this weekend, I would hike up a mountain and camp at the top. That's not me. All right. But there is a part of being outside of, of that kind of existence that I love. And it's sitting out there at night with a good old fashioned campfire raging. I love fires. I don't know why. If I'm if I were sitting next to one, I would be the one that would want to poke it and prod it. And let me just be honest with you. Since we have kids, if my kids are around, my first concern is don't let the kids get near the fire. But overall, I love this kind of alive sense that fire brings. Now, let me just tell you, I don't like building a fire. I don't like the actual process of gathering things for the fire, but I really like the fire, that sound of crackling, that smell in the air. Now, for a long, long, long time, people have compared their romantic relationships to a fire, right? Like when, it, when you first start it, and it's, it's really raging. It's a raging, uncontrollable fire. And sometimes as you get through into the relationship, it becomes more of a smoldering ember than a raging fire. And here's the question I want to look at today from the book Song of Solomon. It is simply this. How do we keep the fire going? 
And the first thing we're going to look at actually is not um, in seven or eight where we're going to be, but the first thing we have to understand is to keep the fire going, you have to begin before you begin. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of who you are in your marriage relationship will be influenced by and dependent upon who you were before you ever got married. The relationship you had, the experiences you had, the people you dated, what happened in that dating relationship, what happened as you were working through who you were and who you liked and what those people were like, as you work through that, it's going to impact down the road who you are. Now, most of us don't think about that when we're in that first setting of, of getting attracted to somebody. In fact, um, the, the, the moment that you kind of become in, attracted to somebody is this, this thing called infatuation. And we, we don't think we're infatuated with people, but it just means that we, um, we meet somebody, we, we think they're cool, we think we like them, we think they look good, we, we, we want to spend time with them, and all of that happens. And, and suddenly we become in a relationship with them. And at the beginning, it's so hard to think of anything beyond that moment. When you're reading through the book Song of Solomon, there's this recurrent thing that happens over and over and over again. And, and I just want to talk about this for a minute because it's so important to down the road. In fact, three different times in the book of Song of Solomon, this same phrase is used. The first time it's used way back um, in the beginning. All right, there's, uh, there's a verse that simply says in Scripture two or three times, Do not awaken love before it is time. Three different times in the book of Song of Solomon, uh, at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, this lady looks at the women of Jerusalem and she says, this is an amazing thing. It is, it is an amazing thing what has happened here. But in the midst of it, I want you to understand, do not awaken love before it is time. And what she's really telling them is, be very careful who you're with and what you do before you enter into a marriage relationship. Here's the thing. Before you ever enter in a relationship that leads to marriage, you're going to be in a time of preparation. And preparation really starts really young. But as you move into your teenage and then 20s, it really kind of amps up. And in that midst of preparation, you have to be very careful that you don't do things that are going to impact later your marriage relationship. Which is hard because when you meet somebody in that first initial infatuation stage, they, they're perfect. There's nothing wrong with them. All the love songs on the radio suddenly make complete sense. I mean, you go into a, a Valentine's card shop and you're like, I want to buy every card here for my pookie bear. I want them all. I'm in, I'm in love. It's so good. I want to spend every time. I, I, I would drive 500 miles. And I would drive 500 more just to be the man who drove a thousand miles, right? It's just crazy stuff. People travel on weekends. They, they just they, they travel eight hours to spend six hours and drive eight hours back. You overspend on Valentine's Day. You get the bear and the candy and the hearts and the cards, the jewelry. Was that a request or was that? You get it all. Everything is so great. You love. Can't get any better. Just can't. I don't know how it could get any better. And here's the truth. It can, but it's got to get real first. And if you're not careful in the midst of that infatuation, pookie bear stage, you'll make some mistakes that can impact you long term. 
When the writer of Song of Solomon, when the girl is responding and she says to the women around her, don't awaken love before it's time, what she means is don't do something it's very difficult, if not impossible, on your own to undo. And so in that time of infatuation, and this is a little bit before we get into the, the, how to keep a marital relationship going, but it's just as important. There, there are three things to limit. I think we had a slide up a minute ago. You need to limit your time, your talk, and your touch. Limit your talk, your time, and your touch. Here's what I mean by that. Limit how you talk about the relationship. On your second date is not the time to tell somebody, I think you're the one for me. Like, like I, I could see us together. I mean, I, have you thought about kids' names? Is that is something you've thought about? Like, that's not the time to do that. Limit your time. I mean, this is just the truth. Um, you become infatuated. You want to spend all your time with them. You want to talk to them. You want to be on the phone. Back in the old days, you run up phone bills long distance because you couldn't, you, you know, you just wanted to talk to them all the time. And as a result, you, you really weed out the support group that you already have in your life. And the problem is when you become in a place, maybe in a relationship that is not good for you, when you've weeded out all the, the support system that you have, nobody's there to tell you it's not good for you. And limit your touch. I mean, Scripture's clear that there are certain touching that is only appropriate between a husband and a wife. And you just can't undo that stuff. You can't undo the memories. You can't undo the reality of it. And so don't see this dating thing as experimental. Let's see how many people I can see or see what kind of person I like. Think of it as preparation. And in the preparation, don't do things you can't undo once you get into the marriage. Now, let's talk about marriage. In Song of Solomon 7, we have this interesting thing because we have the end of their marriage, the the end of it. They've been married for a long time. When you look at Song of Solomon 1 and 2, they've probably been together a short time. It's infatuation stage. It's first parts of marriage. But you get to chapter 7 and 8, and it has been a long marriage. And I was thinking about it today because one of the things that I often um, go back to, especially with with couples that I'm doing premarital counseling for, or when I'm talking to someone, even in some some marital counseling, is I talk about the reality that marriage is not one of those things that just starts out at a certain level and just gradually gets better every day. If somebody ever tells you that it has gotten better every day since we've been married, no problems, no issues, it's never been a problem, they are lying to you. Okay? Sometimes I'll talk about, we're going to talk about conflict next week, and I'll talk about conflict. And somebody will come up to me and said, we've never had an argument in our 45 years of marriage. Like, well, I'm about to have one with you right now, because that is not, that is not true. I, I have this thing that I draw out for couples that I do in counseling, and I've done it here before, and I'm going to show it to you. Something that Susan and I, we were in a pre-mar- we were in a newlywed class when we went to seminary, and our uh, teacher showed us there. Um, I call it the Larson graph of marital satisfaction because this is high-tech hand-drawn with a pen. All right? And so over on the left, we have marital satisfaction, and over on the bottom, we have time you've been married. All right? And so as we all know, you get married, and you start out way up here. Like, that's like honeymoon, right? And when I say honeymoon, I don't mean like just the week that you go on the honeymoon. I mean the honeymoon period, which lasts at least four or five weeks, right? Now, usually it lasts, from statistics, it lasts about a year, okay? 
And then after a year, some satisfaction starts to wane off. And in fact, it kind of goes down. Now, just to kind of, you know, life stage here, this is about a year, year and a half. This is starting to have kids. This is kids are in preschool. Okay. And so there is physical exhaustion that happens at this point. You know, change in diapers, I don't know, 11 and a half years, just hypothetically. Um, preschoolers all that time. And so you have preschoolers, you're having to take care of them, you're having to feed them, you're having to get them something to drink. They don't do anything on their own. They, you know, they're helpless completely. And so you're doing all that, putting them to bed at night. They're waking you up in the middle of the night. I got to go potty, mommy. I got to go t- potty, daddy. And you're just physically exhausted. At least that's what I've heard. All right. And then when they get in elementary school, here's kind of the cool thing. Satisfaction goes back up. Kids are doing stuff for themselves. Things are good. Uh, they're in school now. And so they're out of the house five days a week. And you're, uh, you're, you, if, if you're working, that's good. You're not worried about daycare stuff anymore a lot of times. Um, or they're in the school that you want and you, you've helped them to get there. And, uh, homework is there, but it's not significant, really bad homework usually. And then something else happens. Anybody want to guess what this is? It's y'all right there, right here. <laughs> teenagers right here, right? All of you teen parents said. All right. So they're here. It goes way down. And here's the reason. This was physical exhaustion. This is emotional exhaustion. You know, I mean, you... They're out at night. You don't know where they are when they come in. You worry about who they're with, where they are. They've gone on a date. You're worried about that. You, you, you hear about friends at school, and you're not really sure about that friend at school, and you're kind of concerned about that. The teenager you can have a perfectly good conversation with yesterday suddenly doesn't talk to you for the next six years. I mean, it's just emotionally difficult, right? And then here's what happens. They leave the house. Amen? And look what happens. Now, this is scientific, all right? This is not me. This is scientific. Jeff, this is the problem with being a youth minister. You're right here all the time, all right? And they leave the house and marital satisfaction. I want you to notice two things. First of all, it goes higher than the honeymoon. This is in, this is in survey after survey, and it stays there. I remember, and I tell this story, but it, it's true. When I was growing up, we never did big vacations. Like, we, I never went to Florida. Um, I, I, I never went to Disney World. I never went to any. Our family vacations were, which I, I love this part, we would go to St. Louis for a weekend baseball series. And one time, we went to Hot Springs, Arkansas. And doesn't that sound like what every nine-year-old wants to do? I mean, it's, it's right up there with Branson, but it's a little lower than Branson. Hot Springs, Arkansas. So I go to college. The first fall I'm in college, I'm talking to my mom and dad, and they say to me, hey, your dad and I are going to take a few days, and we're going down to Florida. I was like, you're doing what? Now, it's on my fall break when I get to go, right? No, oh, no, no, it's, we couldn't book it on fall. It's too expensive. We're going to go when you're in school. They've been to Florida twice a year, every year since I left. Now, let me just say, this survey does not account for things that can happen here. Like, for instance, Mom, I know I just graduated from college. I don't have a job yet. I'm going to have to move back in. 
right? And so the empty nest goes here. Now, to be honest with you, if you notice, there are a lot of people that worry about empty nest and what happens after that. But if you make it through that, it goes up. Two reasons I do this. Let me show you the last picture here. There's two reasons I do this. First of all is, if you're at one of these points, just to say you're not alone. I mean, that's tough for everybody. Not to mention that for some reason, Susan and I decided it'd be a good idea next year, we're going to have a preschooler and a teenager. So we'll be emotionally and physically exhausted, just for all of you to know. But I also want you to see, you see these little marks here? That's from surveys where most people give up on the marriage. Where most divorces happen. Some people in secular terms call this the seven-year itch. And about twice that is another place. What I want you to see from that is they give up right at the moment when it's about to get better. In the book Song of Solomon, we see this couple that goes through all this stuff. And the question becomes, well, why does, why does all this happen? Why, why can't it be just that you, you get married here and then it's just a gradual increase in, in satisfaction? Why can't it be just that this honeymoon level just stays and maybe increases a little bit? Why, why do we have to go through all this? What is all this about? And the truth is, when you ask the question, why does this happen? There are four main reasons that I can think that it happens. And the first one is a very simple one. It's just sin in our lives. The problem is, you are married to a sinner. And you yourself are a Sinner. We continue to do things wrong. People make mistakes that are bigger than just mistakes. And so part of the reason for that up and down is because we all live our lives in this perpetual up and down of commitment to the Lord and then letting things creep in. In our society, we see all kinds of things creeping into marriages that aren't supposed to be there. Just flat out sin. Just as important as protecting your purity before you get married is protecting your purity after. And there are more marriages today being wrecked by online pornography than anything else happening in our society. And it's just flat out sin. It's age. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, I'm going to say this delicately, you don't look like you did 10 years ago. Is that delicate? Maybe not. You know, how many of you know what Throwback Thursday is, right? On Facebook, Instagram, all that. Why do people love doing that? They love picture video. Look how much we've changed, right? You don't look the same. And if you go into a relationship and it's based on just looks or just superficial stuff, all that changes. It's not just your looks that change. You change. Just forgetfulness. Forget the benefits that you have. Forget how, what led you to love each other in the first place. Or just plain laziness. I don't want to work on it. I don't want to do anything. I'm just going to be here. In the book of Song of Solomon, we have an example of a man and a woman who fought against this and took some steps to make sure that that fire that they had continually burned and was kindled. And the first thing that we notice here, and I'm going to give you four things to counteract those four things, and then we'll be done. The first thing that we notice here is that if you want your marriage to continue to be stoked and continually be, have fire going into it, you need to learn to pay attention. 
You need to learn to pay attention. Look at chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have yours open. And by the way, I just want to go ahead and tell you, some of y'all were really impressed with the words that I gave you to compliment your uh, spouses last week about um, from Song of Solomon. We got some really good ones this week, too. All right? And so some of you have been calling your, your wife uh, as beautiful as a horse all week. We've got some more for you. All right? So here's Song of Solomon, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs, there you go, are like jewels. The work of a master hand. It gets better. Here's the next verse. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. And your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. But doesn't that sound good? Aren't, aren't you ladies like, man, that's good. Wow. Can I just tell you, this is completely off the subject, but the last one makes me think of this. Um, yesterday, last night was daddy-daughter dance uh, date night, apparently worldwide because everybody's posting it everywhere, here in Goodlesville as well. And they, Goodlesville Parks and Recreation does a great job with that every year. And, and, and Maddie and I were going last night, and we were sitting around talking about it in the afternoon, and we were sitting on the couch, and I was kind of laid back, and she was asking me questions. She's been talking about it for like weeks now, and she was so excited. And then just out of the blue, she kind of pats my belly, and she goes, so Daddy, are you the one having the baby this time? <laughs> That's her way of saying your belly is a heap of wheat, right? <laughs> the first thing we had to explain is we're not having any more babies, either one of us, all right? Let's go back to the verse before, because I want to show you something here, uh, to the one about the feet. Here's what's interesting about this, all right? In almost everywhere else in Song of Solomon, when he describes his wife, he goes from her head to her feet. He describes her eyes, and he describes her nose, and he describes her mouth. He just moves downward, and he starts at the top and goes down. Here, he he starts at the bottom and he goes up. And here's what's interesting about that. As he does that, he describes things about her that only he would know. You see, their day and time, nobody wore bikinis. Like, you didn't go out in public showing anything off. You were completely covered. And so when he begins to talk about her feet, when he begins to talk about even her thighs, those, those were things, the thighs and the navel and her belly are things that only he would have ever seen. And so he's describing things about her that only he knows. Now let me ask you a question, guys. And, and not just physically, although there is some physical sense to this, but there's much more than that. It's deeper than that. What do you know about your wife that nobody else knows? Her likes, her dislikes, the intricacies of who she is, the gifts and talents that God has given her. Sometimes even, guys, you'll know things about your wife that she won't recognize. Man, I I think you'd be great at that. I don't don't think I'd be good. No, I've seen you. I think you'd be really good at that. He is here saying that I have been noticing and paying attention to you. I listened. I've heard when you've said these things. I've noticed these things about you. Guys, this is particularly difficult for us. Because we are the flyover people. 
We like big picture. We like few words. We like not a lot of details in general. And that means it's work, but it's work that we're supposed to put in. Be creative. Listen. Take initiative. And ladies, this is not just something that just the guys are supposed to do. When it means pay attention, you see throughout this Song of Solomon that she is continually talking about him, respecting him. In fact, women, if you want to know how to pay attention and really encourage the men in your life, speak words of encouragement and respect to them. Most all guys have a real issue with self-confidence and who they are and the impact they're making for their family and in their job and in the world. That's just how we're wired. And the person in their life they most desire to hear from about the effect they're having, the good effect they're having in the world, is you as their wife. When's the last time you complimented your husband on the work he does? When's the last time you talked about how much you respect who he is and how he provides? We're going to talk in a few minutes about why sometimes this is so difficult in a marital relationship. But the first step we see in the life of this is they pay attention. He says, your feet are beautiful. Your your thighs. By the way, that, that would have been, I know that doesn't sound like much of a compliment today, your rounded thighs. But it would have been... A description of, for them, that, was, that meant that they were sure in their standing, their statue, their integrity was good. Pay attention. If you want to stoke the fire, if you want to put another log on, pay attention and speak what you see. Another thing, communicate that. Don't just go, well, I've noticed all those things. Tell them. Secondly, make some time for y'all. We're in the South, right? For y'all. I mean, like the two of you. You know what's interesting? When you think about that graph, and this, we kind of talked about this already, but what were kind of the, the recurring motifs about those moments when the satisfaction went way down? It's kids, right? Now, don't blame your kids for your marital problems. They blame you for enough already, all right? Don't blame them for that. But there is this reality that when you're in the midst of taking care of kids all the time, physically, emotionally, that you have very little time for each other. And that's difficult. And you've got to make time. In fact, this is what uh, they do in chapter 7. We're going to skip to the end of chapter 7. If you want to read the rest of chapter 7, very interesting. Um, it would cause us all to blush. And so we're going to skip over all that. Move to chapter. Some of you are going to read that now instead of listen to me. All right. Starting in verse 11, he, she says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see where the vines have budded. Let me ask you a question before we go on. Does she care about all that? Is she into horticulture here? No. All right. Here's what she says after that. Where the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. That's what I want to see. What are the pomegranates doing today? She said, let's get out in the field and there I will Give you my love. She goes on to say this. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you. Let me just say real quickly, she is not talking about fruit here. Okay? If you don't understand what she's talking about, ask your mom and dad. All right? Don't ask me. All right? But that's not what they're talking about. And what she says is, 
let's get away just the two of us. Now, let's just talk about who wrote this book. It's called the Song of Solomon. All right. Let me just ask a question. Did Solomon have one wife? Did he have two, three, eight, twelve? How many did he have? Wives and concubines together. We're just going to throw them all in together. How many? A thousand, you know. Here's what, here's what she's saying. Listen, I, now, I, they didn't all live in the same house, all right? This, this would not be a good reality TV series. But she's saying, whatever's going on in the house, let's get away from that. And just the two of us alone together. Now, she tells him here that she has some special things saved up for him. Which again, you can ask your mom and dad about, all right? And the idea is that we allow the things of our lives to tear away at the relationship that is foundational to it all. I've had many conversations with couples that when the empty nest hits and the kids move out, they, they say it, takes, it took us a year, a year and a half to, to figure out who we were again. Like we looked across the hall or we're sitting down in the living room and was like, I, I don't know that we even know who we are anymore. These two in Song of Solomon were making sure they were getting away and having time. That didn't have to be major getaways all the time. That's uh, Maybe for you it's a time at night where you sit down and just kind of debrief. Maybe it's a time in the morning. Maybe both of you were early morning people and you like to get up and, and have coffee and talk. Or, or maybe it is at certain times of year you just kind of get away. And it's not easy. Listen, I, it's very, very difficult on the rush of life to get away. But the truth is, without it, we miss out on kindling that fire. Here's the third one. Work hard. Throughout the book Song of Solomon, when we see people, what we see is just effort after effort after effort putting in. And here's the one thing that I will tell you, I know from sure, for somebody that has been married now for several years, and for those of us in this room that have been married this now for, for several years, we could attest to this without any doubt, that marriage is hard work. Amen? If you want it to be good, it's hard. It means that you're going to have to have conversations that nobody wants to have. It means that you're going to have disagreements that nobody wants to confront. It means you're going to have to make decisions that nobody wants to make. It means that you're going to have to give out punishment to kids that nobody wants to do. And you're going to have to agree on it and stand firm with each other. It means that you're going to have to pull away from the chaos of life and talk to each other in the midst of it. It means that you're going to have to go through some of the most difficult things in your life. And without each other, you're not going to make it through. It is hard work, effort, toil. In the midst of that, one of the hard work that you need to do, and the final thing, is to delight yourself in each other. Delight yourself in each other. I was thinking about this a minute ago. Um, actually, during worship, as I was, I was backstage, I was praying and thinking through this, and Heard Jeff out here speaking in the midst of the Jesus We Love You song. And um, it, what's amazing to me about the whole idea that we love God is not necessarily that we would love an omnipotent, great creator who has uh, given us a way to have a relationship with him. What is amazing to me is the amount of love he pours out on us. 
And in Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, it says that the Lord quiets us with His love. He rejoices over us and dances over us. And, and the words there, and we've, I've told you this before if you've been around for a while, the words there mean that He literally jumps up and down and spins around in circles and screams at the top of His lung how much He loves us. And I don't know about you, but generally when I think of God, I don't get that sort of picture of God. I get a very respected, seated, or standing, and very demure God. But the God that is described there is one that is absolutely going crazy for His love for us. Last night at the the daddy-daughter thing, they had a dance where all the girls went out and uh, they had a DJ there playing a song. and They just kind of... The girls were just dancing. And I, I stood back and watched Maddie in the midst of that and dancing with some of her friends, some people, um, some friends from this church and from Mother's Day Out and, and others that we know. I watched for a minute, and what I saw was just this pure joy. And believe me, it wasn't really good dancing. There wasn't a whole lot of coordination going on out there. But they didn't care. It was just complete joy and delight. And it says that God delights in us. Jeff, when he was talking, said a phrase. He said there's a big difference between gratitude and adoration. Can I tell you something? In your marriage, there's a huge difference between gratitude, grateful, I'm so thankful God gave me you, and adoration. And delight in yourself and your spouse. Finding things that you want to just absolutely love and cherish. And this is so difficult because here's what happens. When you live as closely to a human being as you do with your spouse, you discover things that are not always pleasant about the other person. Thank you for not amening there. But it's true, right? I mean, you, you find out things that just you don't like. That get on your nerves. That aren't the most pleasant. And as you go into the marriage and into the relationship, it becomes easier and easier to focus on the things you don't like and that are irritating than it is to delight in each other. There's this quote from um, a guy named Gary Chapman who's, Uh, writes on this and it's kind of a lengthy quote but we're going to read it together this is what he says about marital dissatisfaction he says whenever marital dissatisfaction rears its head in my marriage as it does in virtually every marriage i simply check my focus the times that i am happiest and most fulfilled in my marriage are the times when i am intent on drawing meaning and fulfillment from becoming a better husband rather than from demanding a better wife he goes on to say this If you're a Christian, the reality is that biblically speaking, you can't just swap out your spouse for somebody else. But you can change yourself. And that change can bring fulfillment that you mistakenly believe is found only by changing partners. In one sense, it's comical. Yes, we need a changed partner, but the partner that needs change is not our spouse, it's us. And then he finishes by saying this. I don't know why this works. I don't know how you can be unsatisfied maritally, offer yourself to God, bring about change in your life, and suddenly find yourself more satisfied with a spouse that hasn't changed at all. I don't know why this works, only that it does work. And here's what I would say to you. 
as you delight in your spouse, as you find the good things about them, as you encourage them in that way, as you talk to them about it, as you encourage that in them, and as you work on your own life, what's amazing is God begins to work miracles in the midst of your marriage. We put the fire back up. I don't know where you are kind of in your relationship. I don't know if it's that smoldering, really vibrant fire or if it's just kind of really cool. But I do know that Scripture teaches us what needs to happen if we want to put another log on and encourage that flame to extend. And it means that we begin to pay attention to each other. We make time for us. We work hard at it and we delight ourselves in them. And here's the thing. If you're single here today, you need to be looking for a relationship where that can happen. And if you're in a relationship that's already difficult and doesn't bring you joy and doesn't lead you closer to God and is miserable for you and they put you down and it's not good for you, then you need to check that really closely. Because marriage doesn't solve issues, a lot of times marriage brings issues. Let me also just say to you here, if you say, listen, all that stuff you talked about that can cause problems, I've been through it. I'm divorced or I've messed up already tons before I've even begun to think about marriage. Here's the thing that I love about God. is that in Scripture, fire is often seen as a part of God's judgment. But it also has this picture in Scripture that fire can be something that brings healing and wholeness. When you think of Isaiah in chapter 6 where he is there and God brings the tongue of fire and touches his tongue and cleanses him. And God intends and wants you to have a great marriage. And just because you've messed up doesn't necessarily mean that it's over. But you've got to find your grace and the mercy of God in a relationship with him. So what's your marriage like? What do you want it to be? In a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And I'm just going to ask you, maybe you're here and you're single and you say, I just want to make sure I'm prepared for whatever God has for us. And so you need to come and pray about that or talk to me about that. Or maybe you're here and you're, you're married and you say, look, I just, need, I just need to commit myself to being a better spouse. And those four things you mentioned, I haven't done any of that. And I need the Lord to help me to begin that process. Maybe you're here and you just need healing for whatever's happened in your life and in your past or what's happening in a relationship currently, you need healing from the Lord. Would you pray with me?